You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading, Denver's Homeless Community Holds First Ever Forum with Mayoral Candidates, by Robert Davis. From Denverite, I'll be reading, How COVID-19 May Have Upended an Opera and Gave a Singer a Moment for Reflection, by Kevin Beatty. And, How a Denver Zoo Porcupine's Quills Found Their Way to a Native Quillwork Class at Four Winds Indian Center, by Isaac Vargas. From Westward, I'll be reading, Vail's International Student Workers Feel Left Out in the Cold Over High Housing Costs, by Robert Davis. And, Western Water Girl Uses TikTok to Make a Splash on Colorado Water Issues, by Katie Cheshire. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Denver's Homeless Community Holds First Ever Forum with Mayoral Candidates, by Robert Davis. Community members asked about issues such as the use of psilocybin to treat mental health and substance abuse issues, increasing affordable housing and shelter conditions, and improving connections between service providers and people who are unhoused. In all, 12 of the 17 candidates for mayor attended the forum. At one point, the audience numbered more than 100 people before the sun went down, and a cold wind began to swirl through Bannock Street. The forum was organized by House Keys Action Network Denver and Mutual Aid Monday, two nonprofit advocacy groups. We share a lot here. It's a place we come to break bread and to serve others, Jesse Wiederholt, an organizer with Mutual Aid Monday, said about the venue for the forum. Mutual Aid Monday regularly holds a dinner on Monday nights at Civic Center Park. But there has also been a lot of tears shed here after people have their stuff violently taken away from them during a sweep, Wiederholt continued. The conversation was fiery at times. Candidates Andy Rougeau, the son of Jean-André Rougeau, who founded the beauty supply company Sephora, and Senator Chris Hansen, who represents part of downtown Denver, received loud boos from the audience after they were introduced. Hansen recently released a television advertisement that has been widely criticized by members of Denver's homeless community who says it typecasts them as criminals. Rougeau, on the other hand, has positioned himself as the tough-on-crime candidate. At other points of the night, the talk devolved into shouting. One instance came when activist Jesse Paris was asked to take the stage in place of candidate Al Gardner, who did not attend. Paris has run for mayor multiple times and said he is currently a write-in candidate for the 2023 race. Some unhoused people shouted their support for Paris, while others called for the event to move on. Paris took Gardner's seat after a couple of minutes of debate among candidates and the forum moderators, but didn't answer any questions. Another particularly raucous exchange happened when the forum moderators asked candidates whether they supported the city's urban camping ban and the use of sweeps to clear homeless encampments. Rougeau stated emphatically that he will enforce the camping ban, to which the crowd erupted in a chorus of boos and jeers. Candidates such as State Representative Leslie Harrod, Senator Mike Johnston, developer Robin Trata, Robert Trata, and Ian Thomas DeFoya 
so they would stop enforcing the camping ban and sweeping encampments altogether. Some candidates also spoke about improving shelter conditions. A man who only identified himself as Kevin told candidates that some people will avoid working because of strict shelter curfews. Another individual said the shelters aren't safe because of drug use and the fear of being assaulted prevents them from getting a good night's sleep. We need more dignified housing options in this city, Johnston said, adding that he would require shelters to undergo regular financial audits and cleanliness inspections if elected. There were also some notable absences. At-large city council member Debbie Ortega did not attend. Neither did Kelly Bro, the former CEO of the Denver Chamber of Commerce, although she did send a campaign representative in her place. Kwame Spearman, the CEO of Tattered Cover Bookstore, was absent as well. Spearman's absence follows multiple days of backlash over his misrepresentation during a televised debate of a survey about the number of people in Denver's homeless community who want housing. The next two articles are from Denverite. How COVID-19 may have upended an opera and gave a singer a moment for reflection by Kevin Beatty. It's almost showtime inside the Ellie Calkins Opera House. Melodic, bellowing voices echo through the halls backstage as the cast members of Dies Tote Stadt, or The Dead City, warm up their vocal cords, their instruments, for a big night. But it's quieter in Sarah Gartland's dressing room. Just two weeks ago, she had to tell her colleagues her instrument wasn't working. She could not sing in the opera. It was a Friday. I was in the car talking to my husband, weeping, and then I said, Okay, I'm going there. I'm going there now, she said, remembering how she made that difficult announcement. I thought, I'm going to get emotional, and I don't know how to say all of this to be clear and understood when I'm so emotional. So I wrote it all down, and I said, I'm going to take my phone out, and I'm going to read to you exactly what's going on and why I can't do this. And then it was all done. And then I wept. Last year, Gartland came down with COVID-19. It wasn't an unusual case, and she didn't think too much of it after she recovered. But as Die Totstadt inched closer to primetime, a rare piece produced entirely by Opera Colorado to celebrate the company's 40th anniversary, she began to notice her body changing. I was becoming extremely fatigued, which is not the norm for me, she said. I was thinking I was having like a reflux attack. A doctor scoped and scanned her. The diagnosis. The nerves around her vocal cords were in a state of paresis, not quite paralyzed, but still stifled, and it was likely caused by the coronavirus. Opera Colorado acted quickly to cover for her. The show was nearly complete, and it was too close to opening day to replace Gartland entirely. We were at a point in the rehearsal process where bringing someone in to traditionally cover the role was not really an option, Jennifer Colgan, spokesperson for Opera Colorado, told us. The staging is really complicated. It's a new production. There are a lot of elements in the production that are custom-tailored to Sarah. Die Totstadt is about a painter who goes mad after the death of his wife. When he finds Marietta, played by Gartland, he becomes obsessed because she looks so similar to his lost love. Gartland also plays the deceased Marie. He paints her obsessively, so Gartland's face was literally part of the set dressings. Instead of a complete replacement, Opera Colorado hired Cara Shea Thompson to sing offstage while Gartland played a silent role in costume. 
Gartland couldn't even mouth the words while Thompson sang. Her voice therapist said it would further strain her condition. We're so grateful that Carl Shea Thompson was available and on a plane the next day after she got the call to provide vocals for the performance, Colkin said. There are about four or five singers in the entire world that know the music. Some of them don't even sing the role anymore. Some of them live in Europe and couldn't get here. The crowd, Colgan added, fully embraced Thompson and Gartland's duet, especially on opening night. The audience on Saturday night just went crazy when Cara and Sarah took their bows together on stage, she said. It could have been a very challenging and negative situation, and it turned around into something that's been very interesting and positive. Health issues have been kind of persistent on this side of the pandemic. Usually, Gartland spends summers performing in Iowa and travels around the country to work with different opera companies through the rest of the year. She said she's heard about health problems stymieing shows more often since America's pandemic lockdown phase ended. You're hearing a lot of stories from different companies across the country where their singer was sick, their cover or the understudy was sick, a dancer walked the role or a stage member walked the role, walked on stage in costume but didn't sing, she said. It's just a crazy time. Scott Guzilek, Vice President and General Manager of the Academy of Vocal Arts in Philadelphia, said things do feel different these days. As long as opera's been around, there's always been sickness and there's always been last-minute cancellations, he told us. Where things are different now is this tends to be onset much faster, without much warning, and seems to spread quickly. It's just the nature of COVID-19, he says. Performers might be asymptomatic and unaware, and it only takes one group exposure to cripple a cast. Anecdotally, he said it seems like more productions than usual have been ambushed by illness, all while the industry continues to bounce back from the pandemic's economic impacts. Gartland said this moment has been tough, but it's been an opportunity to be more present in her body and on stage. Reports of post-COVID conditions similar to Gartland's have made it into peer-reviewed case studies, and at least one author has suggested there's probably a lot of undiagnosed paresis right now. While most people don't need months of therapy to bounce back, most people aren't quite as in tune with their voices as Gartland. On stage, not singing has let her work on performing with her body, which she hopes will help her be more organic in performances when she can sing again. As she works with her voice therapist, she said she's begun feeling her instrument in a way she's never expected to. A virus likely pushed her over the edge, but she's learned how regular stress can cause her body to grip her throat and diaphragm. She's dealing with anxiety about her diagnosis now, but she said the industry has long been a competitive and tricky space to navigate. I don't know that 10 years ago I would have said anything about this because I would have felt such shame, she said. To heal, she said, she's had to find peace with her body, with her expectations, and with her craft. I have tried to allow those moments to come in, feel them, have the tears if they come, try and say what it is, and then move on because I have to stop holding and gripping so much, she said. All these lessons and opportunities to observe and learn more about myself and my instrument, I'm trying to lock that away inside of myself and remember it for next time. How a Denver Zoo porcupine's quills found their way to a native quill work class at Four Winds Indian Center by Isaac Vargas. 
In the kitchen of Four Winds Indian Center, 205 West 5th Avenue, Christine Featherman, 17, is cleaning and dyeing porcupine quills that were harvested from the body of the Denver Zoo's porcupine, Quill. She empties a plastic container full of white quills into a boiling pot of purple dye. It's important to stir and push down into the dye, she said, so that the color properly sticks to each individual quill. I've been watching my grandma do this my whole life. This is something I take pride in, Featherman said. The quills are for students of an ongoing quill work workshop, the first of which was this past October. Native tribes and peoples practiced the art form for hundreds of years before Europeans arrived on the Great Plains. The class originally was born from Lakota artist Danielle Seawalker's desire to learn quill work. For a while, I thought, who would be willing to teach me, Seawalker said. Since porcupines are not in urban areas, she added, the art form is not as accessible and considered a dying practice. That's when she met Cecilia Bernice Bull Bear at Four Winds American Indian Council. Seawalker asked Bull Bear, an Oglala Lakota elder and quillwork master, if she would be willing to teach her the art form. After securing a grant to fund the project, Seawalker started hosting workshops with students interested in learning the quillwork. And then came the news that, after 13 years in the zoo, Quill the porcupine died in January of advanced liver failure. When Seawalker heard this, she quickly reached out to the zoo. It was great timing. We invited people from our class to come along and harvest its quills, Seawalker said. Amari Achimbolt, 19, was one of the students that was part of the zoo experience. She's been attending these quill workshop classes with her grandmother. To make it easier to remove its quills, they let the body rot. I've never harvested an animal like that before. We said a prayer, did introductions, and took turns learning to remove the quills, Archambault said. Marsha Whiting, 51, also attended the harvesting experience. Praying for the animal and its quills stood out most to her. The respect for the animal that everyone had, to pray for the animal to give us its quills, it was really cool to be able to see the source of the project, Whiting said. After doing beadwork for so long, I was ready to learn something new, said Rhonda Standing Bear, 38, who was attending her fourth class with Bull Bear. Bull Bear teaches students what good quills look like, what to look for, and the history behind the art form. Students use raw hide and quills to create bracelets, necklaces, and earrings. You always have to be positive when you're working with quills. We want everyone to be blessed, love each other, and be kind and respectful, Bull Bear explained. At the start of the class, Bull Bear noted how proud she was of her students, acknowledging how each person was at a different stage in the learning process. These are my students, and we all help each other, Bull Bear said. Rich Cornelius, 51, was attending his fourth class. He said that everybody looks for community. For Native Americans, that can be hard to find. He added, This class has felt like what I did on my reservation before I moved to Denver. Mar Williams attended the harvesting experience, and they remember the massive amount of quills the animal had. Being able to be in this larger Native community, it does instill respect for the animal and the art form, Williams said. It puts into perspective your place. We don't run the earth. We have a place and a responsibility. We have a spot with creation, 
Cornelia said. Seawalker says there's a rate wait list for future classes, though people from native tribes will be given priority for these, and that securing funding will be key to any decisions about expanding availability. The following articles are from Westward. Vail's international student workers feel left out in the cold over high housing costs by Robert Davis. Adrian Castro was excited to work his first ski season on Vail Mountain when he arrived in Colorado in early December 2022. He had traveled more than 3,200 miles from his hometown of San Ramon, Costa Rica, about an hour and a half outside the country's capital of San Jose. But that excitement quickly faded once he began looking for a place he could afford to rent in the Vail Valley. Castro, 22, says that since he arrived in Colorado, he has lived in nine different homes, sometimes with up to 14 roommates. Some of the places he's lived in were on a week-to-week basis in towns like Edwards, which is about a 40-minute bus ride to the resort. At the same time, he says, private landlords on apps like Airbnb, Vacasa, and Verbo have charged him and his roommates as much as $900 per person to rent a home. That's a hefty price for someone who makes only $22 per hour working part-time at one of the ski rental shops at the resort, he points out. Like Castro, all of his roommates are classified as J-1 student workers, part of a temporary visa program that allows foreign students to come to the U.S. to work as au pairs, camp counselors, or similar jobs. Some students come because the jobs pay well, and the money they take home can go a lot further in countries like Argentina, where every U.S. dollar trades for about 200 pesos. Castro says he heard about the program from some classmates at the University of Costa Rica who had made the trek to Vail before the pandemic, and they couldn't stop talking about the thrill of experiencing the mountains and learning to ski. Many of the other J-1 workers that he has lived with work as dishwashers or housekeepers with Vail Resorts, Castro says. All of them were turned down for employee housing, and he suspects it's because they arrived too late in the season. Winter seasonal job postings typically go up in July, with high-volume positions such as ski school, lift operations, guest services, and retail going up first, according to the Vail Resorts website. The website also says that employee housing options are extremely limited and that hired employees need to start looking in the area as soon as possible, early and often. Moving so much has been really hard on me, Castro says. I need a new cell phone and a new laptop so I can finish my schoolwork when I get back home, a reference to the biosystems engineering degree he's completing. All this moving is making it impossible to save any money, he adds. Castro's case is a prime example of how the town of Vail's expensive rental housing market is impacting the local workforce, especially seasonal workers. Employee housing through Rafael Resorts is in such high demand that most housing units are taken months before the official ski season starts. This means that many workers have to find housing in Vail or nearby towns like Avon and Edwards, where the average rents range from about $4,500 to $5,500 per month, according to Zillow. For comparison, employee Housing options typically rent for between $500 and $620 per month per person, according to the Vail Resorts website. It's a difficult challenge for anyone in Castro's predicament to navigate, let alone an individual living and working in a foreign country. Rachel Levitsky, 
a communications manager for Vail Resorts, says that the company has about 1,200 housing units in Eagle County that are reserved for employees at Vail and Beaver Creek. Levitsky adds that the vast majority of Vail's housing units are assigned to employees in frontline jobs in their first season with the company. Vail also requires J-1 workers to affirm that they have secured housing before arriving for the season, she says. Still, affordable housing is a crisis in our mountain communities and requires commitment by us and all of our communities to support projects that create affordable housing for our frontline team members and the local workforce, Levitsky continues. Vail Resorts has recently put forth some ideas to increase the number of housing units it can offer employees. In April of 2022, the company had announced that it intended to spend $17 million to build 165 employee housing units. However, Vail's town council rejected the proposal in August of 2022 because of its potential impact on the local bighorn sheep population, the Colorado Sun reported. Meanwhile, the town's plans to, to redevelop the Timber Ridge Apartments, one of the complexes that has employee housing options, will be quite costly. The project plans to increase the number of apartments at Timber Ridge from 96 to 284 at a total cost of more than $148 million, according to a story in the Vail Daily. The town expects to start construction on this project in April of 2024. For J-1 workers like Castro, though, the cost of waiting for these new units to become available is hard to bear. Right now, Castro says that he and his friends have secured housing through March 16th. After that, he's unsure where they will go. But that uncertainty hasn't slowed the number of customers he's asked to serve on a given day. In January, Vail Resorts CEO Kirsten Lynch told investors that the total number of skiers who visit its, its resorts has increased by about 13% year over year partly because of improved conditions at its Colorado, Utah, and Tahoe locations. Vail Mountain also recently announced it will extend its season until May 1st. But Castro doesn't think Vail is keeping enough employees around to help during the later part of the season. He says there are just eight other people who work at the rental shop now, compared to the 26 employees it had at the beginning of the season. He adds that the increase in skier numbers has resulted in days where he has had to work through lunch to help customers get fitted for boots or to repair rental skis. It can also be tough to relax at home after a long workday when you're living with 14 roommates, he notes. Everyone he lives with works a different schedule, and people are cooking meals at all hours of the day. Meanwhile, they've had to cram as many as five people into a single bedroom at some homes, which leaves little room for a comfortable night's sleep. People store their clothes everywhere. I mean, the kitchen table, coffee table, cabinets. Everywhere has become a closet, Castro says. To Kevin Nelson, a resort management professor at Western Colorado University, the issues Castro and his friends are experiencing are indicative of the struggles that many resorts are facing post-COVID. Resorts have been facing staffing shortages, which has made them more reliant on J-1 workers. At the same time, high housing costs, stubborn inflation, and regulatory burdens have made it harder for these companies to build more employee housing options. Still, providing employee housing for J-1 workers should be on top of every resort owner's mind, Nelson says, not least because J-1 workers are performing jobs that locals aren't keen on doing. 
Providing housing, housing can also inspire someone to return to work a second or third season, which cuts down on employee turnover costs, he added. It can really ruin a resort's business model if they don't support their J-1 workers with adequate housing, Nelson said. In fact, data from the U.S. Department of State shows that there were more than 11,000 J-1 workers who entered Colorado in 2022. A zip code level filter of that data shows that more than 1,200 of these J-1 workers wound up in Vail, representing a 19% increase from 2019 before the pandemic began. Vail Resorts is the largest employer in Vail that benefits from these employees. Levitsky says J-1 workers make up about 10% of Vail Resorts' overall workforce, but declined to provide specific employment figures for the company's property in Vail. A representative from the U.S. Department of State said in a prepared statement that the agency is actively undertaking a review of reported concerns in the Vail area to ensure sponsors and employers are complying with the program's regulations, but declined to provide specifics. For Castro, however, the experience of moving so frequently has put a damper on his desire to return for another season. Living like this is an experience I'll keep with me for the rest of my life, Castro says, but it's not something that I ever want to experience again. Western Water Girl Uses TikTok to Make a Splash on Colorado Water, water Issues by Katie Cheshire After Denver's coldest winter in 13 years, snowpack for the upper Colorado River headwaters sits at over 120% of normal. That's good news, but it doesn't mean that Colorado or any of the rest of the states that rely on its namesake river is out of the woods when it comes to a shortage of water, explains Tio Leto, a Durango-based TikTok creator and water advocate. I've definitely been fighting tooth and nail in my comments to explain to people that one year of good snow is not enough to pull us out of a two-decade-long drought, she says. I always try to explain that last year we had 91% of average snowpack, but the spring was super hot and dry. We actually ended up with like 58% of average flows in the river. That issue is just one of many she hopes to educate people on through her TikTok account, Western Water Girl, where she explains in frank terms what the heck is going on with water in the western United States to her 54,000 followers. She intersperses facts with fun, often referring to her audience as y'all, or using turn turns of phrase like it's popping off in the Colorado River Basin this week. She kicks off a video about a hedge fund that has been buying land near the Colorado River headwaters, reportedly with plans to cash in when water becomes an even scarcer resource, by saying, just in case you were in need of further confirmation that we're currently living through a dystopian nightmare, authenticity is the most important social capital that you can have for Gen Z and some millennials, Leto says. When I started my TikTok, that is just me. That's just raw. That's how I talk to people. That's how I explain these issues to my friends and family. And I felt personally when I started that it was best for me to just like speak the way that I normally would. Leto usually uses TikTok's green screen effect to speak in front of news articles or primary sources evidencing what she's describing. Her goal is to bring younger voices into the Western water conversation and help those in older generations understand how social media can be part of creating an impact in the real world. 
Oftentimes, with water in particular, a lot of the officials and policymakers are so close to the problem that they are physically incapable of zooming out and explaining it in easy-to-understand terms for people, Leto says. It's a complicated issue, and there are a lot of caveats, but the overall issue we're facing is that we use too much water, and we're getting less water. That's not complicated. Everyone is going to be impacted by this crisis, so everyone deserves to have some level of understanding of what's going on. The impacts of the crisis are personal to Leto, who describes herself as a water baby. Growing up, she enjoyed being near rivers or creeks, camping on the Dolores River in Gateway, Colorado, with her family throughout her childhood. In high school and college, she was a river rafting guide on the Animus, observing the 2015 Gold King mine spill firsthand. At Fort Lewis College, she founded a water club called H2Org and coordinated excursions for students to learn more about water issues. I wrote my senior thesis on the Dolores River, says Leto, who earned a degree in environmental science with a minor in political science. After graduating college, I was like, wow, I really want to keep doing this, and it turned out that it's really hard to get a job related to water, so that's kind of what led me to making my TikTok. Her first job was at an environmental consulting firm, but she quickly realized the firm mainly worked for the oil and gas industry. Then she applied for jobs with her local water conservation district, water-related nonprofits, and a job as an animus riverkeeper. She also tried to become a volunteer member of the Southwest Basin Roundtable, one of the nine roundtables across the state that helped shape the development of the Colorado Water Plan, which was revised in 2022. None of those opportunities worked out. I have a lot of passion, and I care a lot, but a lot of times they told me that I would need to go back to school, Leto says. With the Basin Roundtable position, they basically were like, we really appreciate your enthusiasm and your passion, so maybe there's a better way for you to be involved. But there's never another way to be involved. There's this huge educational and, I'd say, socioeconomic barrier to involvement in a lot of these discussions. Since she couldn't get an official water job, she works various seasonal jobs in Durango, such as being a leave-no-trace educator, along with coaching mountain biking and managing inventory at a local snowboard shop. That gives her time to make her TikToks and focus on advocacy. I had a lot of doors closed in my face, and I was like, okay, well, if I can't get any of these doors open, then I'm going to build my own door, she says. When I talk to my friends and I talk to my family, or even strangers, about these issues, by and large, they had no idea it was happening. We're not doing a good enough job discussing it with the public. So I saw that there was definitely a niche that needed to be filled. And it's work to fill that niche. Lito says she spends five or six hours researching a topic before making a video about it. It's important to her to maintain accuracy so that people can trust what she's saying. As Leto continues her advocacy, she wants mainstream organizations involved in water man management to see how important reaching out to different audiences is. She was part of a panel at the 2022 Colorado River Water Users Association conference. She said people there were mixed when it came to their reaction to her work. 
There is a lot of resistance, but it comes from this old guard of people, and the younger, more creative and forward-thinking folks are definitely very interested in the work I'm doing and supportive of it, she says. That's what I stressed in my speech at CRWUA on that panel, was that we need to involve young people and other underrepresented groups, like indigenous people and people of color in these discussions. Toledo, not having the requisite formal education or years of industry experience, doesn't mean people aren't impacted or their voices don't count. And she thinks it's time for those on the inside to recognize that. Also, she adds, it's important that experts have a voice on social media, because if they don't, people can more easily get sucked in by misinformation. I am certain that in the absence of clear and easy to understand communication, there are actors out there that are profiting off of spreading misinformation during this crisis. And that really concerns me. Leto says. She fights with other TikTok creators who spread misinformation about water issues and tries to boost other creators in the environmental space doing work like hers in other niche areas, such as eradicating invasive species and recycling. Leto is searching for more opportunities to take her work off the web. For example, she's participating in the Where is the River event in Phoenix on March 14th, the International Day of Action for Rivers, to draw attention to the drying of the Salt River. Though water is kind of her thing, she's an avid volunteer for other issues as well. I do care a lot about water, but I really just care about making the world a better place and finding a place where my voice and other young people's voices can be heard, Leto says. At the Colorado Democratic Party's Obama Gala Awards on April 1st, Leto will receive the Murphy Roberts Award, which is given to a person under the age of 25 who has shown dedication to the party and its values. Leto, who is now 25, helped Democratic candidates sweep the ballot in La Plata County in 2022. Her local focus is on engaging youth, says Karen Asensio, executive director of the Colorado Democratic Party, in a statement. She put together a major music event in Durango for the under-28 crowd with an entry ticket of proof of Colorado voter registration. Leto is pushing back against the idea that young people don't care. When I speak to older policymakers and officials in this arena, they are under the general impression that young people just don't care or don't want to be involved. And I firmly disagree with that, Leto says. Young people care a lot. They're just not used to using the traditional channels of involvement. So creating new avenues for them to be educated and involved in those decision-making processes is imperative. Because young people will have to live or die by the choices made about water management, Leto says she believes that they have both a right and a responsibility to be involved, and that government agencies should be working to make sure they connect to those groups. If you're a young person and you're passionate about an issue, but everybody who is already within that arena just keeps telling you, wait your turn, you're not going to engage in those power structures because you're like, well, what's the point, Leto says. She wants people to know that there is a point. She reminds herself of the Lorax by Dr. Seuss, where the lesson is that if you care, you need to act because change can't happen otherwise. When people say no, find another way, Leto implores. In her case, that way was TikTok. Take that frustration of not being heard and use it as fuel for your fire. 
because you can either let it defeat you or you can let it fuel you, she says. Go for the latter. You would be absolutely shocked at how much of a difference and how much of an impact you can make by just using your voice. She certainly made a splash using hers. Denver Botanic Gardens announces 2023 Summer Concert Series by Westward Staff. Warm summer nights filled with music are just around the corner, and the Denver Botanic Gardens is giving us a lot to look forward to with the announcement of its 2023 Summer Concert Series. The annual outdoor series began in 1980 and has drawn crowds to the gardens ever since with its stellar lineups and beautiful location. The series, which includes 10 concerts from June through August, is produced by the nonprofit Swallow Hill Music, which offers music lessons, concerts, and community outreach across the Mile High City. The DBG also announced the return of its Evenings Alfresco events, intimate music experiences that take place throughout the 24-acre grounds. Following is the lineup, and then get ready to buy your tickets for the Summer Concert Series and Evenings Alfresco when they go on sale Tuesday, March 21st at 10 a.m. Denver Botanic Gardens members and Swallow Hill members get early access to tickets starting Wednesday, March 15th. All concerts begin at 6.30 p.m. Doors open at 5.45 p.m. at the UMB Amphitheater at the Gardens, 1007 York Street. On Tuesday, June 20th, Nico Case and Nora O'Connor. Wednesday, June 21st, Mark Cohn and Sean Colvin. Monday, June 26th, Rising Appalachia. Thursday, July 6th, Santigold. Tuesday, July 11th, Esperanza Spalding. Monday, July 17th, Fitz and the Tantrums. Monday, July 24th, Preservation Hall Jazz Band. Tuesday, August 1st, Andy Grammer. Wednesday, August 2nd, Steep Canyon Rangers and Amethyst Kaya. And Wednesday, August 9th, Ozumatle. Brothers of Brass celebrates 303 Day with new single, Mile High, by Emily Ferguson. When protests flooded the streets of Denver after the killing of George Floyd in 2020, you would often hear the loud, blaring sounds of Brothers of Brass, which soon became more than background noise. The New Orleans-style brass band found itself taking almost a leadership role, said Khalil Simon, the group's founder and sousaphonist. There were the police with rubber bullets and pepper spray and rioting at night, he recalls. That kind of stopped when we started to guide the protest, like we literally took over the entire movement in downtown Denver for at least two weeks straight. We were actually kind of a powerful presence in the movement because we were so loud and boisterous that everywhere we went, people tended to follow, adds saxophonist Armando Lopez. So because of that, a lot of movement leaders were very invested in trying to tell us where to go. We ended up very much a part of it, and it was definitely a major milestone. We got messages online from people saying that they went to D.C. or they went to more marches and were just leveling up from being inspired by our music specifically, which is really special. Just a few years earlier, members of Brothers of Brass had been busking the same streets where they would later lead protests gaining fans as they played on the 16th Street Mall and around the Denver Performing Arts Complex. Today, the band is an established, integral component of the local music scene, 
and it's paying homage to its home base with the new single, Mile High, which drops on Friday, March 3rd, a.k.a. 303 Day. While the group is known for its classic New Orleans brass band stylings, lately Simon has been melding that sound with other genres, such as hip-hop. Those influences are highlighted on Mile High, as well as the band's upcoming album, Trapadelics, which Simon expects to release sometime in April. There's a lot of bands out here, but there's not really any diversity out here, or at least not any that's represented well enough for Denver to be acknowledged for that, he says. Denver is known for jam bands in EDM, and that's about it. There's not really a huge funk or jazz scene or hip-hop scene or any of the things that I'm really used to, so that's why I'm trying to bring that element to the city with my brass band and by releasing Mile High. The band began composing the song in Simon's basement during the pandemic. We just kind of got together and just thought of all the things that make Denver Denver to us, he recalls. In my verse in the beginning, I'm talking about everything from the fireworks coming out of Coors Field to getting a parking ticket. You know what I'm saying? We even talk about ourselves, the brass band, being a fixture in Denver, playing underneath the bridge at the Broncos Stadium after a game. It's just about everything we consider Denver. Simon first came to the city in April of 2015 with the original edition of Brothers of Brass, which he'd created with college friends who are no longer with the band. They had been busking the streets of Atlanta, playing outside Braves games, when they decided to travel the country, hitting up more baseball games and busking other events. We ended up playing outside of a Colorado Rockies game, and during that same trip, we met Armando, Simon says. Lopez was busking at the corner of the 16th Street Mall and Curtis Street with his friend, Jake Herman, as the duo Nimbus. But they couldn't ignore the sound of Simon's tuba coming from a block away at Champa Street. I always wanted to play with a sousaphone player, and Khalil and his friend were both extremely loud brass players, Lopez recalls. We could hear them very clearly from where we were. I remember telling Jake, Oh no, I'm going to go talk to the guy. Sacks in hand, Lopez approached Simon and his friend. He remembers that they seemed wary. With street musicians, a lot of times people try to protect their turf, and there are these little music battles, Lopez explains. But instead of questioning the interlopers, he suggested that they play together sometime, and he and Simon exchanged numbers. In the weeks that followed, Lopez and Herman joined Simon and his band as they bussed at the Denver Performing Arts Complex as events were letting out. During one of those initial trips, me and my friend David came back to visit Denver during our Christmas break while we were going to school in Alabama, and it was cold and we were playing the 16th Street Mall, Simon recalls, and my friend was like, hey, let's go check out The Grinch. And it was a musical play at the Buell Theater in downtown Denver. So we went to go play that when it let out, and we probably made the most money that we had ever made just busking. We probably made like $1,000 in an hour. It was insane. So we stayed the rest of the Christmas season. For the next year and a half, Simon wound up collaborating with Lopez every time he returned to Denver. But after his apartment in Louisiana flooded, he decided it was time to make a move. I remembered how much money I was able to make and how welcoming people were out here out-of-towners, Simon says. So I hit up Armando, and at that point, I had showed them the way to busk to maximize the most money, 
So I guess they trusted me. So I was like, hey, I'm thinking about moving out. Would you guys want to start busking in a band with me? Simon moved here permanently in August of 2016, and what he calls the official Brothers of Brass formed with him, Lopez and Herman on snare drums. Since then, they have remained core members, working with a rotating cast of bandmates. In addition to being a band, I like to think of us as an enterprise. We just have a lot of different scenarios, different products, different ways that the band shows up, and those require different people, Lopez explains. I think our call list is probably something like 30 people, and our full-timers are probably like a solid 8 people. That first summer, Brothers of Brass tried an unusual busking location, at least for a brass band. The fish lot during the Seminole Jam Band's annual Labor Day weekend run at Dick's Sporting Goods Park in Commerce City. The musicians had such a good time, they decided to follow fish. There's definitely several milestones, I would say, and touring fish was one of them, Lopez said. We did that for a few summers in a row, and those were pretty huge. We learned a lot and really, really zoned in on our sound. When in town, Brothers of Brass was a regular attraction on the mall at lunch and at the Denver Performing Arts Complex around Curtain Call. And in late 2018, according to Lopez, the band became a vanguard for First Amendment rights and busking rights when it worked with the Denver City Attorney's Office to guarantee it can continue to play at the DPAC. Today, though, the band is doing more paid gigs, as well as engaging with kids at local high schools. Later this month, Brothers of Brass will play the Frozen Dead Guy Days Festival, which has relocated to Estes Park, but its focus remains in Denver. I started to feel like I had become a Denverite, or had been accepted into the community. When I would walk up and down the 16th Street Mall, people would say, Hey, you're the guys who play at the Arts Complex, Simon reflects. We started to get recognition, and we started to get hired by people who had seen us there. And then I would say that a year after that, in 2018, it got to be a full-size brass band. And at that point, people expected us to be downtown playing, and they went downtown to look for it. So once I felt like we were that permanent fixture in downtown, that's when I kind of started to feel that Denver was home. And that's the home that Brothers of Brass is celebrating with its new single. We feel very much adopted by Denver as a city, Lopez says, and we moved that into an accessible sound that people identify with as the sound of Denver. That's part of why we're doing the song Mile High, you know. We recorded that to be the Denver City Anthem, because we are in the streets so much, and we want to bring people a recognizable sound, something that gets stuck in their head, something they can associate with the city. Because when people think of music nationally, a lot of times Denver's not on the top of their minds. But this is quite a musical place and artistic place, and a very creative melting pot. And we want to just represent that and record it and put pen to paper and give people that. As Simon shares what he loves most about the Mile High City, his mind goes to the essence of community. I really love the people that I've met here, the relationships that I've been able to have, maintain and grow with and learn from out here. I really love being able to put my art on full display and that people love it and accept it and accept me for who I am here, he says. I love Denver, and I'm going to keep making songs about it for sure. 
Mile High releases on all streaming platforms Friday, March 3rd. Brothers of Brass plays a free release party at 9 p.m. Saturday, March 4th at Ophelia's Electric Soapbox, 1215 20th Street. Pickleball Entertainment Concept Camp Pickle is coming to Centennial and Globeville by Molly Martin. Pickleball is a lifestyle, not a trend, says hospitality entrepreneur Robert Thompson, owner of Angevine and Company. You hear a lot about pickleball facilities opening, but they're not entertainment concepts. They don't bring together the model I put together in 2010. That model became Punch Bowl Social, which debuted in 2012 in a former Big Lots on South Broadway and grew into a 20-location national chain at its peak. Thompson stepped away from the brand in 2020 and has since focused on other projects under Angevine, including opening the Mediterranean restaurant Three Saints Revival in the Hotel Indigo behind Union Station and taking over the Frenchman Hotel in New Orleans. But now his focus is back on entertainment with Camp Pickle. Last year, it was announced that the concept, which is inspired by 1940s-era camp culture, will open next to the Top Golf in Centennial in 2024. Thompson has also partnered with Vita Development Group to open a second Camp Pickle in 2025 as part of a 41-acre development project that recently broke ground in Globeville called Fox Park. They put together a shockingly interesting project, Thompson notes. It's 41 acres at the intersection of two of the busiest travel arteries in the nation. The development will include 14 acres of interconnected parks and open space to integrate culture, community, and innovation, according to a press release. Like Thompson, Vita Development Group's Jose Caradano is a pickleball believer, and in addition, we quickly realized that we share a similar passion for the projects we take on, Thompson says. The Camp Pickle concept requires acreage, something that's tough to come by in downtown areas. But Fox Park is maximizing space by building an underground parking system, making it an ideal fit for the brand. Thompson is also looking for a location for a third outpost north of Denver. Each Camp Pickle location will have approximately 15 pickleball courts, but will also offer other entertainment options like duck pin bowling and private karaoke rooms. What really sets it apart from other pickleball facilities, though, is the food and drink program. There will be a scratch kitchen specializing in what Thompson describes as smoke-influenced Mexican and camp cooking. While he emphasizes that it's not barbecue, he maintains that the smoke piece is critical. There will also be 40 craft beers on tap, 16 higher-end wines by the glass, and 10 craft cocktails, all served from mirrored, self-poured draft walls. While pickleball itself isn't new, its rise in popularity is, driven lit largely by the pandemic when people sought fun, safe ways to socialize outdoors. 36 million people played pickleball last year, Thompson says. It's nuts. It's already ahead of the projections of where we thought it was going. Another statistic that convinced Thompson to go all in on the sport. 50% of players are 34 years or younger, he says. With a wide-ranging fan base 
Camp Pickle's throwback aesthetic is designed to be warm for older generations and kitschy and new for Gen Z. We can really thread the needle between a lot of different demographics who love playing pickleball and eating and drinking while doing it, he concludes. Villa Denver, opening this spring on Market Street, wants to redefine downtown nightlife by Molly Martin. Champagne upon arrival, an at-your-service button, and tableside mixology are some of the things guests at Villa Denver can expect when it opens this spring at 1416 Market Street. People deserve to be spoiled when they go out, says Anthony Mora, co-founder of House Group. Along with Johnny Christmas and Brandon Junt, he's launching a new concept in a space that has housed a number of clubs, including a reboot of Purple Martini, LUMI, Oak Tavern, and its upstairs club, 24K, and Monarch. With Villa Denver, though, House Group hopes to redefine downtown nightlife. The trio has a combined two decades of experience working in the food, beverage, and entertainment space, but this marks their first venture as owners. We want to be creative. We want to think outside the box here. We want to take some risks. When Villa Denver opens this spring in the historic two-story building, it will offer a reimagined take on bottle service, which Morris says is not as exciting as it needs to be. We want to spearhead changing that. In order to do so, Villa Denver will focus on crafting cocktails tableside, using fresh squeezed juices, exotic mixers, and premium spirits. One thing you won't find on hand, soda guns. The fresh quality ingredients for the beverage side of things will be echoed in the food program, which is being headed up by Chef Toby Prout, whose resume includes North in Cherry Creek, Iskaya Din, Kevin Taylor's at the Opera House, and Lenya, which he co-owned. The experience of opening Lenya and his travels to study Latin American cuisine convinced Mora and Christmas that Prout was the ideal person to create the Villa Denver menu. The offerings will consist of eclectic tapas, Mora says. We will launch with a small menu and focus on shareability and fun presentation. The ground floor of the space will boast a warm house party-like lounge atmosphere, while upstairs will lean more into nightclub vibes complete with a louder sound system. The entertainment itself will span from live funk and jazz musicians, local music collectives, and live DJs to fire breathers and magicians. The entertainment will be a constantly evolving part of the experience, Christmas says. Villa Denver will be open late on weekends, but will also offer happy hour on weekdays. Eventually, the team wants to add brunch on Saturdays and Sundays, and possibly open as a workspace during the day. We are absolutely excited to do this, Mora concludes. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.